This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. We are about a month and a half into the 2021 season since racing first got back on the calendar, and it's a real joy to see people reporting their results and celebrating their accomplishments, be it their first triathlon or their 50th. The relief and joy that people are experiencing is really palpable, and as a coach and an athlete, it's wonderful to experience it and be a part of that experience for others. One thing that I've seen with the return to racing is a resumption of the somewhat predictable pre- and post-race posts on social media of some who seem to be maintaining some of the bad habits that they may have had from before the pandemic. I'm not talking about the stress-laden social media posts about things that are completely out of the control of the participants. There are, of course, plenty of those. No, in this case, I'm referring to the many pre-race predictions that some people make for themselves, followed by the post-race litany of excuses they then put up when their predictions don't come to pass. I'm always somewhat bemused by these kinds of posts. I mean, on the one hand, good on you for putting yourself out there and letting everyone know that you're setting the bar at a certain level. But on the other, why do that? I mean, really, who are you doing this race for anyways? I've seen people posting about how they are going to do Ironman X with the sole purpose of qualifying for Kona. And that to do so, they are going to bike this specific time or better, and that they will then run that specific time or better. Now, is it me, or is this strategy nothing more than a recipe for disaster? As best I can tell, the people who make these statements tend to not be the people who really should be making these kinds of statements. For example, going to any Ironman with the express purpose of qualifying for Kona is maybe not the best idea, even if you have a track record of doing so in the past. You go to do your best, and if a slot comes your way, perfect. But don't make qualification your one and only stated goal, and definitely don't make that public, because as we all know, so many things can go wrong to derail that, and then what? Furthermore, giving specific times that you intend to hit might seem reasonable, but those times should probably be reflected in your past races. If you've always biked six hours in an Ironman, maybe stating a goal of five hours isn't such a great idea. Plus, you don't know what's going to happen on the day, and you haven't ridden that course before, so maybe not the best idea to set time goals that aren't reflected in reality. Unsurprisingly, after a race, these same people who post unabashedly about their not-so-realistic goals will then post about how they had a bad day and find all manner of reasons external to themselves to explain their failure to meet their previously stated goals. To me, this is really the most unfortunate part of the whole saga. Instead of excusing away the disappointment, this is a time to be insightful and look inwards so that you can learn for next time. My takeaway from these kinds of stories, and what I really want to leave you all with in telling you this, is the following. By all means, set yourself goals for your races, but make them realistic, and for the most part, 
keep them to yourself or between you and your coach. They're really no one else's business until after the fact. Enjoy your day and focus on the process of your race rather than on specific times. Focusing on time goals is the best way to get yourself into trouble. And finally, if things don't go your way, look inward to find the reasons why, because that's where the answers will always be. Blaming your performance on everything outside of your control is the best way to ensure that you do the same thing again in the future. Finding the reasons for not meeting your goals inside of yourself and addressing them, that's how you improve. On the show today, for the medical question, I'm going to stick with the theme of returning to racing and focus on a subject that I find at once fascinating and a cause for some confusion amongst athletes. Tapering is something everyone seems to know that they should do before a race, but exactly what that should look like remains a mystery for many. I take a look at what science has been done on this and have a special guest to discuss the reason for taper tantrums, and that's coming up in just a bit. Later, I am excited to bring you a conversation that I had with Rocky Harris, the CEO of USA Triathlon. Rocky was extremely generous with his time as he and I sat down to discuss USAT's plans for the return to racing, the organization's ongoing work for increasing diversity and inclusion in the sport, and where he thinks triathlon is going in terms of growth in the future. Before that, though, I want to take a moment to remind you all once again of the benefits of becoming a Patreon supporter of this show. If you enjoy the podcast, for the price of about a cup of coffee per month, you could sign on to be a subscriber and receive access to great bonus content that can be found on my Patreon site. That's patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The URL, once again, is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thanks in advance for even considering. With racing back on many people's calendars, training has taken on a whole new, or maybe I should say old, sense of purpose. Rather than searching for motivation or training just for the sake of staying fit and keeping busy, athletes have actual races to target and consequently find themselves returning to old habits of higher volumes and intensities in preparation for start lines. Now, we all know that part of a well-designed training program for any race, especially longer distance events, is the incorporation of a taper just prior to the big day. On social media and in discussions with my own athletes, I've often encountered a lot, of inqu- a lot of questions about tapering and just as many misconceptions. So I thought I'd dedicate this episode's medical segment to a review of the evidence on tapering as a tool to set oneself up for a good performance in a race. You might be surprised to learn that there's a pretty robust body of evidence on this subject, but there is. And so I think that it's very worthwhile to look at what has been done on the subject in order to answer the questions that I've come across and dispel some of those myths that I've seen as well. Now, if we're going to address tapering, I think it's best to do so from the standpoint of answering some of the common questions that have been asked about, or at least the ones that I've seen. And those are, how long should a taper be? How should a taper be structured? How exactly does a taper help physically? What other benefits does tapering confer? And finally, are there psychological benefits associated with tapering? Or are the taper tantrums a real thing? Let's begin with the first two of these questions, those being how long should a taper be and how should a taper be structured, because most of the early investigations on tapering looked at them in combination. One of the earliest papers that I came across on this subject was by a group from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. In this study, the researchers were interested in determining what kind of activity would result in the biggest performance benefit to athletes who tapered for a seven-day period. 
Athletes trained at their usual volume and intensity and then followed one of three taper plans for seven days, either a low-intensity, low-volume plan, high-intensity, low-volume, or a rest-only plan. Athletes were then tested and then trained again for four weeks before sequentially moving through the other taper plans and being retested so that there was a really good way of comparing the different taper plans within the same athlete and then comparing the athletes to each other. Now, in this study, athletes were found to benefit most from the high-intensity, low-volume taper, and the results, frankly, weren't even close. While those athletes who rested saw an essentially unchanged performance from before their taper, athletes in the low-intensity taper group improved their performance by 6%, while those in the high-intensity taper benefited by 22%. Subsequent studies have confirmed these results in runners, cyclists, swimmers, and triathletes. In a meta-analysis from the University of Montreal in 2007, numerous studies were combined to reveal that, again, high-intensity tapers were significantly more advantageous in terms of athlete performance than were low-intensity tapers of periods of, or periods of rest. Spanish researcher Mujica, or Mujica has reported performance gains as high as 25%, depending on the sport, when athletes reduce volume but maintain or increase intensity in their training during their taper. As to the duration of the taper, studies have been fairly consistent here as well. Regardless of the event being trained for, two weeks seems to be the sweet spot for taper duration, with seven days being the bare minimum at which an effect can be expected to be seen. And tapers longer than two weeks, we start to see some detraining, so it becomes a bit of a problem there, and therefore those aren't really recommended. With respect to the structure of the taper, just how much should volume be reduced during that two-week period prior to an event? Well, quite a bit of research has been done here as well, and as reported again by Mujica from Spain, it appears that 40 to 60% reductions in volume from pre-taper training volume are associated with the maximal performance benefits on the day of the target event. And training volume can be reduced by either decreasing the length of sessions, or by decreasing the frequency of sessions, or both together though it seems as though decreasing the length rather than the frequency is probably best, and again, maintaining or even increasing intensity really needs to be prioritized during this period. So we've seen that the taper is beneficial to performance in a race, but how exactly does tapering affect physical performance? Well, it turns out the answer to this is pretty complicated, and there are positive impacts at many, many levels. The benefits of tapering begin at the level of the muscle cell, where research, research has shown that there's a fractional increase in the utilization of VO2 max. That is to say that the VO2 max itself remains unchanged in a tapering athlete, but there's enhancements in cellular enzymatic processes that allow for improved extraction of and utilization of oxygen, such that, functional, such that functionally there are improvements in overall performance that could be seen both as improved speed and longer time to fatigue at higher intensities. Running economy is also improved with tapering. That is to say that less oxygen is utilized in order to run the same speed after tapering than was needed before tapering, again, due to some of those intracellular processes that get changed during the tapering period. There are also measurable improvements in muscle glycogen levels seen with tapering. <clears throat> Essentially, this is an increase in stored fuels at the local level associated with the taper phase. And this can be as much as 25% increase and can really give a significant benefit to athletes who are doing longer types of duration events. There are other biochemical changes at the cellular level, but the impact of those might not be as important as the one I've already mentioned. On a tissue and organ level, additional changes have been seen, including higher hematocrit and blood volumes, and increased hormone levels that can be associated with improved power and endurance. 
An interesting observation is that tapering has no observable effects on either of cardiovascular or respiratory symptoms. So the effects that tapering has is really consolidating the efforts of training prior to the taper, as well as these biochemical changes at the cellular and tissue levels, and not from any improvements made during the two weeks of tapering itself from exercising. Now, after all of this, you may be wondering exactly how much of an impact you might expect tapering to have on your own personal performance in an event, and is that even something that's quantifiable, or does it amount to something that really matters? Well, it turns out that this has been measured, and that depending on the sport being analyzed and the level of athlete being examined, the results of taper can be extremely important. The numbers that I referred to before, the 22% improvements related to tapering, that's the improvements in force of muscle contraction or the ability uh, to exercise to fatigue. That's what's improved by 22%. That's not necessarily the time improvement seen in an event when an athlete tapers versus not. That's been studied as well. For example, in one study of highly trained Olympic runners and swimmers, tapering was associated with as much as a 2% improvement in times for those athletes' respective events. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but consider that at, the level, at that level of competition, the difference between a first and last place is often less than that 2%. So you can begin to see how a taper can be extremely important at the highest level of competition, and that trickles down to age groupers as well. In other studies, the effect of a taper has been reported to be much higher, but the size and reproducibility of those studies make them a little bit hard to generalize to all athletes. Suffice it to say, the tapering for two weeks while maintaining intensity can definitely improve performance of muscles in terms of strength and the ability to perform to fatigue, as well as improving in overall times in an event that is uh, running, swimming, biking. So that's the physical benefits. Well, what about the psychological benefits? There's no question that race performance definitely includes a substantial psychological component. So does tapering affect athletes' minds in the same way that it affects their bodies? And is that conducive to performance? Well, in several studies that have looked at this question, tapers have been shown to be associated with significant and consistent improvements in athlete's sleep quality and quantity, improvements in mood, and decreases in somatic complaints leading up to a race. In other words, athletes are less likely to experience symptoms of illness or injury during their taper periods. Now, I don't know about you, but I was pretty surprised to learn about these findings with respect to the psychological benefits of tapering. For pretty much as long as I've been in triathlon, I personally have been very much one to experience what I like to call the taper tantrums. And I know that I'm not alone in this regard. I have many friends and colleagues who, when tapering, will find that rather than feel better in terms of mood and sleep and injury symptoms, we're actually going to feel exactly the opposite. Well, since I couldn't find any research to explain why I and many others have experienced this, I decided to reach out to Ironman Master Coach and the head coach at Life Sport Coaching, Lance Watson. Lance has been on the podcast before, but for those of you who are unfamiliar with him, he is a Hall of Fame triathlon coach who guided Simon Whitfield to the first gold medal in triathlon at the Olympics back in 2000. And I've had the pleasure of working with him as a member of the Life Sport Coaching staff uh, for the last eight months now. Lance has been very much a mentor to me as a coach, and I'm thrilled to have him back to get his insight on why it is that so many age group athletes seem to experience 
the taper tantrums and not the reported benefits of tapering seen in the research. Welcome again, Lance, to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I'm uh, having a little smile to myself about the taper tantrums. I haven't heard that one before, <laughs> but there's truth. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the research seems to suggest that, you know, people who during their taper, at least high level athletes tend to have improved mood. And yet I know personally, that's not always the case. I find leading into the last couple of weeks before a race, I'll often have increased irritability. And I've, I've heard this from others as well. What's your you know perspective on why that might be the case? Well, uh, I guess respectfully uh, to the researchers, um, I'm not sure how they define improved mood, but um, objectively, you know, sitting on the sidelines and guiding uh, dozens and dozens of athletes to their A race tapering for championship races, professional amateur. Um, typically, I would say there are a few factors that really contribute to them uh, maybe not being in their best mental space. Uh, and that it's actually one of the key things as a coach, you have to try and guide them through in the last week as they get ready. I mean, so first of all, they're out of routine, right? Um, as athletes, we're used to having our regular training schedule. Um, it's our, our, it's our daily endorphin hit. Um, it's a, that reaffirmation of how we move, um, you know, our, our athletic prowess is part of our identity. So you're not getting that regular sort of metered feedback. And then often when you're tapering and you do go do your final prep sessions, more often than not, they feel not good rather than good. So they don't get that nice feedback of, wow, I'm on fire. And you know, I've got the magic in my legs. It's more like, um, you know, their, their muscles are resting. Um, they're often getting, get tightening up. Um, they're loaded full of glycogen, which absorbs water. So they feel heavy and, you know, they have to they have build a sweat and, and even, uh, you know, neuromuscularly or, or coordinationally, um, you know, if they haven't been in the water for a while, they haven't done any cadence work on the bike, they can feel a little bit rusty getting out there too. So, so they're not getting the, the regular positive physical feedback that they're used to getting. They're not getting their endorphins. And then I'd say the last thing is obviously there's the looming event, the test, the big moment at the end of the week. And that's uh, they've got more time on their hands to sit around and think about that and to worry about it. So yeah, as a coach, you're really trying to, sometimes you're trying to talk an athlete off the ledge or you're trying to remind them of their past positive uh, training experiences, all the things they can rely on for confidence, um, to be grateful, to be in the environment, getting to do their A race, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. All of that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things you mentioned about endorphins, I think is really uh, an important insight because I know personally when I taper, I in, invariably I get these phantom, you know, aches and pains. These, you know, I'll be on a run, an easy run, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh God, something in my hamstring. And I'm like, you know, it it happens all the time. And I know now that it's I can ignore it and just push through it because it's nothing. Mm -hmm. But you know, again, I, the research seems to suggest that I'm an outlier because a lot of the researchers have said that, you know, somatic symptoms of illness and injury are lower in the period of tapering. And yet, you know, in my discussion with you, you said, no, that's not the case. You're, you you yeah. encountered this in athletes all the time. And you taper injuries. Yeah. Taper so, injuries. So, I've seen it time and time again. It's uh, taper injuries. There's, there's nothing wrong. Um, and then they hit taper and suddenly they've got a, you know, a calf pull or an Achilles is niggling them or, or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, what I've observed and what I think is that in a lot of cases, you know, athletes, because they have just finished maybe their hardest training block or their highest intensity training block, they may be carrying low grade injuries along, uh, already 
which are masked by those endorphins and that regular movement and muscles are long and supple and not pulling as much. And then they start to rest and muscles shorten up and tighten up. Joints are maybe a bit more restricted and they're not masking, you know, some of that pain and, and those injuries uh, do come through. And it's actually one of the reasons, um, you know, as a coach, you're always trying to balance on the scale, um, you know, of resting an athlete, but still keeping them moving <laughs> so that, you know, joints are articulating in the right way and, and muscles are uh, supple and, and um, loose for sure. And so, you know, you've, you've alluded a couple of times now to the difficulties as a coach to make sure athletes get through this period. What can athletes sort of do besides, you know, keeping moving, keeping focused on the end goal? What, what are some tricks or tips that you would have for athletes in general to get through the taper period and stay positive and stay focused? Yeah, for sure. So um, number one is to create a schedule for themselves because most of us uh, athletes are fairly used to being structured. And, and that schedule may include things like, going for a walk or going out for lunch or reading a book or watching Netflix or, or those kinds of things. So actually make time in your day for those kinds of things so that you actually have a go-to activity and you're not just sitting around thinking about the race. Um, the other thing is, you know, stay mentally engaged with the training sessions that you do have. So still, you know, mentally rehearse uh, moving well before you get in the water. Uh, think about, skill development or reaffirmation uh, as you're moving through those workouts. Um, but also, I also will always coach them to not continually look for, you know, the, the, the special magic fairy dust in those workouts to really prove to them that they're fit because the fitness has been built weeks before. And I'll often joke with an athlete, like if you feel really good the couple of days before a race, that's not always a good sign. <laughs> it's a, usually it's like, if you feel terrible in the couple of days leading into the race, so you get out, you start moving, you start sweating and the body starts to move and, and you've got all those energy stores and, and your, your body is like recharged and ready to have a good hard effort. I guess the last thing I'd say, Jeff is, um, you know, especially if I have some of my real high level athletes going into their big international competitions, I'll actually have them not only visualize the race, but I'll have them actually mentally prepare and visualize the environment that they're going to go into in the week leading into it and how they want to carry themselves, how they want to process where they want their head and their heart to be in those days leading into the event. So they're actually mentally prepared before they get there on how they want to manage that week. Cause they may be seeing some of their, competitors who they have to go race for paychecks against, you know, like walking around town or the pro race briefing and, and the same, you know, if you're a, a Kona athlete and you're, you're walking down the streets of a lead drive as an age grouper and there's like, you know, the, the most incredible collection of physical specimens you'll ever see on one Island in the world <laughs> ever, you know, of all ages walking around, it can be pretty daunting and get in your head. So, you know, so I try and prepare them for realistically, what is that, environment going to be like the week leading in? And then how do you want, where do you want your head, your heart to be? How do you want to manage um, yourself and, and still be cognizant of you get to go do something that you love to do and you practice doing all the time? That's great advice. And I think really puts uh, a bow on this whole discussion. Lance Watson, thank you so much for your insights and uh, for joining me today again on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Okay. So let's sum all of this up again, tapering definitely beneficial no matter how it might make you feel. Uh, some people are going to feel great. Other people are going to experience some taper tantrums. But performance improvements are measurable, repeatable, 
and explainable based on observable cellular and whole system changes. In order to make the most of a taper, two weeks of a 40 to 60% reduction in training volume while maintaining or even increasing intensity is clearly the best way to go. So rest up, taper hard, and enjoy your next event. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. My guest today is Rocky Harris, the Chief Executive Officer for USA Triathlon, who has been in the position since August of 2017. In that time, Rocky has overseen some really important changes at the organization, including the creation of Time to Try, an industry-wide initiative launched by USA Triathlon and Ironman to introduce 100,000 new participants to the sport. Last year, also under his guidance, USA Triathlon and Triathlon Business International partnered to launch Endurance Exchange, an industry-wide conference for endurance sports. And notably, under his leadership, USA Triathlon was recognized by the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committees for its diversity and inclusion initiatives for three consecutive years, from 2017 to 2019. Well, I'm thrilled to have him join me today for a conversation on some of the programs that USA Triathlon is running and to talk about the state of the sport in 2020. Welcome to the TriDoc Podcast, Rocky. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, it's been an incredibly challenging past year, um, and has of course, and that of course is not just for triathlon, but for the world as a whole. Uh, I've spoken on this podcast uh, of how the pandemic has perversely, in a way, led to opportunity for multi-sport by giving people who would normally be office-bound time to exercise and be introduced to running and biking. I'm curious how you see the state of triathlon um, as racing begins to resume, and how do you think uh, USAT can encourage some of these newly active people to give our sport, pun intended, a try. Awesome. Yeah. So um, right now, uh, because we have all this, you know, pent up uh, athlete excitement around racing, the demands at an all time high for athlete, athletes wanting to race. And, you know, we, we knew that toward in June of last year, we did a survey with our members. And I think it was at the time, this is right at the height of the pandemic, 82% said they would race like today. Um, which, which was shocking to us because at the time I'm a big risk taker and I wouldn't have. And so I was surprised that that just showed the mentality of our athletes and how much we missed it. And, and so I saw that even for myself on big races, I was supposed to compete in that, you know, when those days came around, it was really depressing. Right. And so the demands at an all time high and, you know, what we've really worked on the last year though, is that the sport as a whole really had an incredibly challenging year. And this, this isn't only us at USA Triathlon. It's more so that the entrepreneurs, the small business owners in our sport, the small clubs, the race directors, the small coaching businesses. Some coaches did great. Some clubs did great, but others didn't. And that's really what we've been working on the last year is helping them recover and recover quicker. And so that's what most of the time we spent in the last year is around how do we best serve? We knew the athletes were going to be there. How do we best serve our, our, our constituents? Because if there aren't races and there aren't clubs and there aren't coaches, there's not a sport. And so that that's really there's that's still in recovery mode. So that while the athletes mindset as of last June, essentially, is like, let's race uh, the sport for many good reasons, uh, you know, couldn't come back for, for really good reasons for health and safety of communities and everything else. 
And, and I think right now what we're seeing is that uh, when there was confidence that came down from the federal government a few months ago, like that, you know, everyone would have the opportunity to get vaccinated. I think it was by the end of May that everything changed immediately. Um, we had, I think, 1,100 event race sanctions in, in like the next two weeks. Um, the number of people registering for races increased, the number of people joining, like everything didn't come back to normal, but it was, it was a moment where we were really excited to see that the sport. And so right now we have about 3,600 races that are sanctioned for this year, which is a lot. We were not expecting anything close to that. And so the sport right now is, is in recovery mode. It's not in it, it, the, the, the good news is that the demands an all time high, not only from our own own athletes, but what you mentioned before about, you know, people getting outside and exercising or people, um, you know, leaving gyms and, and starting to ride bikes and get out and enjoy the, the their communities. Because our what it makes our sport so special, as you know, as a, as a triathlete is is not just race day, which is awesome. It's it's really experiencing your community. It's running out on the trails. It's biking out in your community. Now I love being indoors and riding Zwift and all that, but that's what that's what I like about our sport most is it allows us to do three different sports or multiple sports and also um, connect with our community better. And what we found is that group uh, that decided to to start trying different things like running, biking, swimming, um, they're they're a great target audience for us. And so we're spending a lot of time right now trying to. Um, put all of our beginner resources set front and center, try to help people as they come into the sport, help them learn. Like we're, what our main mantra is like, you know, find a club, find a club. If you're new, go find a club because the clubs are going to be your support mechanism to help you get through it. Once you get to a certain level and you want to get better, find a coach because the coach is going to help you get better. And the key is, is to, uh, for us, we believe that we're encouraging people to race locally this year. Um, you know, we, we, from every year, you would know better than me, but we have a lot of medical experts that, that work with us on a daily basis, especially in the last year. And, you know, our, our sport is not the thing that's unsafe. It's the travel, it's the rest, everything you do around it. And so the more that we can limit that, um, at, at least early on, um, until we, we later in the summer where we believe it'll be much different, uh, sport and everything. Um, it's, it's, uh, that's what we're encouraging people to do. Now we want people to still compete in national events. We want people to still compete in major events if they have an A-list, but if you have a choice, race local. And that's what, that's what we're telling. And we're also encouraging people before you go to that big A race, if you have the opportunity is to do just a local race. So you can also learn some of the protocols that will be in place and be prepared for it, even though they differ by community. Yeah. I like everything that you had to say there because I, I, completely agree with you in just about everything. Uh, as you know, I had the great pleasure of joining you for a webinar recently where we discussed some of those safe return to racing guidelines. And, you know, I said at the time, I, I think the guidelines are really well thought out. And then in general, like you, I believe triathlon, very safe endeavor to participate in. Um, even now, as the pandemic continues, where caseloads are going down, but they're still at unacceptably high levels. Uh, but so long as those guidelines are adhered to, I believe that this is a safe uh, thing to do. Um, how is USAT going to monitor adherence to those guidelines? Yeah, so we don't monitor in events. We do pre-event monitoring and checklists with the race director and post-event uh, analysis of the races. Really, for race directors, what we've we've been working with them is how do they how do they monitor it? And for us, it's about 
every community is so different, right? And and the, the hard part for our race director community is that in some communities, it's wide open where like they don't like there's a they're rebelling against something as simple as wearing a mask or staying six feet away. And in other communities, it's very restrictive. And so what we we are, we're always on the side of being more restrictive. We're always on the side of being safer. What we what we have to be careful of, and, and we we've uh, we've uh, uh, communicated to our race director community that you know they can use penalties, they can do, they can not have people compete, they can tell people that, like there's they can pretty much use our sportsmanship kind of uh, penalties within our uh, within our rule book if they feel like somebody's egregiously uh, not refusing to follow the, the rules that they put in place. Now, what, what we have to be careful of, and this is what we've seen in the restaurant industry, move every industry, is how, how far do we want to go? And as the governing body, we're not, we're not actually policing whether an athlete wears the mask at the time going into transition, but we are looking at, are the employees doing that? Are the, are the, are the volunteers doing that? Um, tell us, like, uh, what, what pro- we're, so we're, we're reviewing all the protocols in advance, and as long as the race director follows the protocols that we've uh, approved from them, it's really hard. This is the challenge that everyone's facing is how do you police that among individuals? And some race directors are taking a very hardline stance. You're out of the race if you're not following them. And others, because of the communities they're in, are taking a little bit more of a lenient approach where they're not going to like have a security guard remove somebody from a race or something like that. So that's really what we're doing is we're trying to do as much on the front end to prepare our race director community to have a safe race and to be able to do everything they can in their power um, whether they're going to police it on site, that's that's the challenge that we're all, that I'd say everybody in our country is facing right now, no matter what sector you're in, whether you're an employee here, like I have, you know, my staff here, um, or you're running in a race. And that's why I really put the onus on athletes to to police it with like help, because what I when I was I did a marathon this year. Um, and one of the athletes was being over the top, like talking, putting the mask down, like getting close to everybody. And it was bothering everybody. And, and I said something to the person, I said, Hey, look, like we all, we all just want to keep like, let's have our space here. So these races can continue because if we mess this up as athletes, that messes, not only the race director is going to lose their, maybe their job or livelihood, but it also means we can't race. And so a lot of that, and also I would say to athletes who are concerned, really concerned, like my wife has been concerned about uh, racing and competing. She's going to do her first triathlon in a while this next month, but find races in, in either in your community or races or go to a community where um, they are following the protocols. Because if you're not, if you're in a state that's wide open and you don't feel comfortable, don't, don't race. And I'm, that, it's coming from me who. Like I believe in racing. I think the protocols are in place, but it's really the athletes have to make these decisions for themselves. Um, and what we've done is create the safest guidelines that are out there, more restrictive than the CDC, more restrictive than the states are telling us to do. Um, and we're trying to get uh, arm the race directors, which is m- with as much support, so they don't have to be the police. And what I've seen work really well is again the athlete to athlete, peer to peer discussions around this. Yeah, I you know I hear what you're saying. I I I I could see how it's a sticky situation for everyone. I just fear, like you said, I think what you said there about what you said to that other athlete. I, you know, we want this to continue, and if one of these events, if you know, if if there's an event where, I don't know, in one of these wide open places where three thousand people show up, and and really the guidelines that have been established are just being flaunted and not being you know adhered to in any way, and it turns into a super spreader event. 
I fear for the state of the sport. And so, uh, you know, I fear for races being shut down, uh, you know, short term, medium term, whatever. And, and so I come back to, you know, what role does the sanctioning body have? And I hear what you're saying. I really do. Uh, but if everybody's saying, look, it's not up to us, it's up to the individuals, we know that the individuals aren't behaving to a large degree. And, and that's where, you know, is there a role for you guys as the sanctioning body to, to say anything or do anything? Yeah, to try I think and if, if the race protocols are not being followed by the race director, mm-hmm. that's different than an athlete, right? And that's what... And we've given the athletes, empowered the, excuse me, race directors to make those decisions, to be able to, you know, again, not have somebody race if they choose to, if they're not following their protocols. But we had, not, we had 1,100 races last year and not one person got COVID, not one, right? So we're, we understand that there are concerns and there should be, and we need to be as safe as possible. But I think it's a total overreach for us to go in and, and police on an individual athlete level a race director's race. That's what the officials, that's what uh, race directors are there for. It's just like any other rule, right? And and for the governing body to step over the top of that and say, we're going to police that outside of what we already have in place for everything else, all the safety protocols for swim safety, every, we have to, we have to, I think that it would be like our government over, overstepping in the same way. And I think we, our role is to make sure that the protocols are in place, they're as safe as possible and the race director and their staff follows them. Now that's that's our role, and then afterwards, as we do the audit, we can learn a lot. We've learned a lot from the races that have happened already about where we need to make, uh, you know, provide other guidelines that are a little stricter, and then some places where we can loosen them up. Again, we're stri- our guidelines are stricter than the C- what the CDC is recommending right now, yeah. um, and and most of our race directors around the country, we won't we won't a- a sanction a race if they're not following basic protocols. Now, yeah. th- w- w- a lot of it though is is um, on a local basis, and that's really where. Overall, I'd say that uh, COVID in general, forget about triathlon, the challenge is over the course of last year and a half, the, sta- the, the local communities differ so much. So like I'm dealing with state governments, but within those states, the state government will say one thing, every community will say something different. And so we have to go in and work on a, a clean guidelines for that state that can also be applied to each of those towns. And that's, 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 that's where we, it's not uh, as simple as saying, this is what we're going to do. And everybody follows it across the country, because if it was national guidelines from the federal government, it'd be much easier for everyone to be able to manage it. But there isn't, it's been localized, as you know. Yeah. Well, I want to turn to uh, some other subjects. And I mentioned earlier the accolades that uh, the organization has received for its efforts in promoting diversity and inclusion. But we know that, unfortunately, triathlon remains a predominantly white sport. Uh, You've been on the record as wanting to change that. And, you know, I have to note, you've taken some really impressive concrete steps to do so. Can you tell us where some of those things stand? Yeah. So, you know, that like you mentioned is that USA Triathlon was, um, we recognized years ago that, uh, this is before I got to USA Triathlon, that um, if we keep trying to do the same things and and talk to the same group, um, we're going to end up over time being a much smaller sport um, because the country is getting more diverse. The it's good for the sport. It's good for us. It's good for the community for us to become more diverse. And so this wasn't something that we just woke up in May of last year when George Floyd died and got killed. And we didn't, they, we, this was part of who we were. And so the diversity, and I've, I've been an advocate for diversity and inclusion my whole career in life, because, you know, my, 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 my grandfather is Japanese. He fought in World War II for America 
um, in the in the 442nd Battalion, and he was uh, not allowed in restaurants. He his family, you know, family were internment camps. So, like, it impacted my family. I have black nephews and nieces. Uh, my mom was a a, a, a strong uh, working woman in the 80s and had over. So, just I grew up knowing that the there there were inequities that just weren't fair, and we're giving certain people advantages over others. And there, it wasn't true equality. We, we, you know, we, we, we believe in equality in America, but there are so many systems that are set up that have prevented us to truly be equal. And so everywhere I've been, I've really been an advocate for, for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's one of the things that attracted me to triathlon. Actually, I, I was an athlete. Um, I, I really thought the board had a great vision for where they wanted to take it. And I'm not somebody who likes to come in and maintain status quo. So what they said is that we want to make this sport a, a diverse sport. And I remember at the time I said, this is an amazing challenge because it's so much harder to take something that exists and change it than it is to build something new. So like if we were to build triathlon today, it would be a diverse sport because we've committed to that from day one. It's, it's different to change mindsets, to change history, to change all those things. But we're committed to it. And I think that our history shows that. I mean, being recognized by the USOPC, like you said, we're the only national governing body. They pick one. And we won it three years in a row, the Diversity and, and Inclusion Award for our efforts. But, you know, that those that's just recognition. Right. And, and it's because we did roll up our sleeves and do the hard work before, quote, it was popular. Right. End quote. Um, and, and I think that that's given us an advantage, but it hasn't actually changed much in, in terms of the real numbers. What it has done is it's let everybody know before um, last year that we were committed to it. We put our stake in the ground and we're committed to it. We invested a lot of money in the historically black colleges and university. We now have two NCAA programs out of those. Uh, again, this was uh, more than, uh, this was back in 2018, right? We decided to do this. Um, we've we've really doubled down on our diversity. And, and we're, what we see the biggest issue right now is um, Diversity can't actually happen in sport or anywhere unless the leadership reflects uh, our community. And so we spent a lot of time, our board did for, for years, uh, to try to diversify the board because the decision makers in the sport, the leaders in the sport, are going to make the decisions that change the future. And so we now have a very diverse uh, board. We have, um, last year, we had a, a, our second female president ever. We have more women than men. We have our first two African-American uh, board members. We have a Hispanic female board member. Um, we have our, or this year, we have the very first in the history of Olympic and Paralympic sport, para, elite para-athlete as our president. So we've we've diversified at the top. And, and you know, even with our women, women in our sport, we have about 40% female participants, which isn't good enough, but it's it's pretty darn good as a starting place. But we, again, didn't reflect that in our leadership. When I got to USA Triathlon, I was shocked to find out that we had never had a female executive, not one, not one, if you can believe that. This is a sport that started out by saying women and men are equal. We're going to do the same distances. We're going to give the same prize money. Everything was equal except in our leadership. And so now we have three females on my executive team. We have three men and three women. And it's it, it makes such a difference in the way we make decisions, having the diversity of thought and diversity at the top. So that's one thing. And we're not still not diverse enough. But the, it was about starting at the leadership level. If we can't get that done, then, then we're in trouble. We're not going to ever we can fix small things, but that's what we, we need to do. And then what we've done over the last few years is we've really focused on engaging the community and learning from our community of who's doing it best. 
Like what clubs have done a great job of outreach and getting people from diverse backgrounds to join? We need to learn from them and, and, and take those best practices and share them across the country. Same with race directors who are doing amazing jobs at attracting new athletes and diverse athletes. So that's what we've really, we're really like focused on how do we apply something in one community and apply it elsewhere? Because I've always told my staff and anyone who listen to me that if it's about my staff in Colorado Springs trying to diversify the sport from Colorado Springs, it's not going to happen. Our community has to say enough's enough and they have to take action too. We're going to take action. I'm committed to it. We're committed to it. But our community has to be just as active or more active. And we believe that by activating our community, that's how we're going to create diversity in our sport. And I think the number one way right now to create diversity, the first step we have to take is to diversify our clubs because there we do have clubs across the country that are very diverse, but they're the most welcoming environments. Like if I want an, a new athlete to come in, I'm always pushing them to clubs, but we need to make sure that those clubs are armed with the tools to be able to recruit, to be able to promote to different audiences. And so that those are the, the, the short steps that we're, we're doing. We, we also last year did a, a within a, like two months, we pulled together um, a, a, a summit for diversity. It was called to, uh, to, Together We Thrive um, Actions for Change. Um, and so that was all about, again, trying to activate our community to learn from each other and apply it. And that's something we're going to do. It's free. We're going to keep doing it. We think it's really important. We're also going to share a tremendous amount of resources across the country. And again, we're going to we're going to continue to commit to athlete diversity from the bottom level up. From youth, um, we, we feel like... Um, what we were, what swimming did maybe 15, 20 years ago when they acknowledged that they had a true diversity issue and they acknowledged that it wasn't just by accident. It was because of pools, closures across the country and urban environments, um, families over history, like not telling kids not to swim because they weren't swimming. It's a whole history of it. It's not something that's just because there's not access now. And they recognized it and their sports gotten more diverse. And, and I think for us as the governing body that when we look at, we look at a few different things. We look at, again, we have to own it like as a sport that, and just say, look, let's, let's face the reality. We're not as diverse as we should be. And until we reflect the demographics of America, and at least we don't have to match it perfectly, we're, we're not going to end up being a mainstream sport. We're going to be isolated. It's a separate sport among people who are affluent white males. And that's going to, that's a, at the end of the day, that is not going to work for long-term growth of our sport. Again, the second piece is a community focus. Focus on the community, get the community activated. And then it's about accessibility and impact. Like, let's not, let's make sure there are no barriers in the way of anyone joining our sport. And one example of that is we, we have a Pathways to Leadership program that we created where we give, you know, scholarships to different underrepresented communities to come do coaching certifications, come to our clinics, come to our um, conference every year. Then we're trying to get people out of that group to, to, to volunteer for us, work on committees, help. And what that'll do is allow us to bring more people up to become board members, to become international representatives of the sport. But it really is about proactively reaching out and recruiting people to come and be a part of our sport. And then again, the last thing, which we all know is representation matters. And we say that all the time is, you know, yesterday, if you can believe this, Sika Henry became the first U.S. African-American female to become a pro. Let that sink in for a minute. Our sport's 45 years old. Um, we, we have our first female black triathlete that's a U.S.-based triathlete. That is a, a long overdue but incredibly important moment. 
And, and those moments, so now the next generation of athletes finally have someone that looks like them, that represents them. And that, that's what we're really trying to do for us is to promote and market the leaders and the Max Fennels of our sport, the Sika Henrys of our sport, and the young people coming up in our sport and do a better job of making sure they're represented in our images and our language and everything we do. And so that's a, that's a lot of what we're doing. But, you know, the main thing is we're committed to it because it's not it's not only good to do. It's not only the right thing to do. It's also good for our sport and every individual business within our sport. The more diverse we get, the more part sponsor, corporate sponsors we, we get to, the more race athletes rate are racing. The, it's just everything gets better. So it's, an, it's a growth strategy, too, not just a diversity strategy. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with everything you said. And I, I've uh, just watched in wonderment as, as so much has changed quickly. And it's really nice. I participated in a race recently, and it was so nice to notice uh, for once, uh, a, you know, a fairly large number of people of color, which was really great. I was really excited to see that. Uh, you did mention barriers, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, bring that up because in my discussions with people of color and with immigrants who are considering the sport, it comes up all the time about the cost of entry. Um, and I wonder, you know, it, are there any initiatives uh, that USA Triathlon has looked at to try and address this? Yeah, so the, the three barriers that we've identified through all of our research is the swim, just the fear of swim. This isn't just for people of color. This is for everyone. That's like the, one, the number one barrier. The second is cost. And the third is awareness, education, information, like knowing where to start, knowing what to do. So And so those that goes across no matter who you are, whether you're you know, I'm 44 year old white male or, you know, that, that, that's me. That's everyone that, that comes into sport that didn't have a, a history in swimming, didn't have maybe a ton of money or doesn't know about the sport. So what we've done is we're trying to chip away at each of those separately in different verticals. So the first one that we identified early on is resources, kind of like, what do I do? How do I get started? And that's actually what, what attracted me uh, or made me have a positive uh, affinity or, or a feeling about USA triathlon. When I got into the sport, I didn't have any trusted resources. I was like Googling stuff. Like I would get like all these weird, you know, uh, mess like things about what I should do as a triathlete. And it was all like very, and I'm a very competitive person, but it was all like, if, if I had already been in the sport for 10 years of what I should be doing as a triathlete and finding beginner resources was nearly impossible. And then I, I stumbled across USA Triathlon and they had, a, they had a bunch, they had a bunch of stories. They had a bunch of, like, I remember I brought their checklist to my first, like what to bring to, you know, your first race and how to set up transition. I was that guy. Yes. I watched videos. I did whatever I could, but we found that there was about a 10 year gap where we weren't doing that as much, the USA Triathlon. So we did launch a time to try initiative with Ironman. Like my first month I got on the job, we, we I met with Andrew Messick, their CEO and we came up with this idea to bring the new new athletes into our sport, and we created my time the time to try website, my time to try, um, and that that really we found that that was an amazing resource for beginners because it actually gave you training plans, it gave you kind of everything to get started. So that was one piece of it. The other piece is swimming, and that's something that we're really focused on. Um, we we're actually spending a lot of time right now think, rethinking all of our other formats. Um, duathlon, uh, uh, aqua bike, all the other formats and rebranding them and repositioning them and making them more relevant. And the reason why is I think that duathlon, run, bike, run is the best entree to our sport for the people who are afraid of swimming, for the people who don't know much, you can run around, jump on a bike and run around again. And people can figure that out. The swimming throws people off sometimes, but trying to uh, uh, really focus on 
uh, diversifying our sport, the actual sport offerings, because that'll also attract a younger audience if they're not just focused on one sport. No one right now, this younger generation is all about unique experiences and trying to find the next experience. And my generation was too, but my ex experiences were different. It was about going to a different race in a different community or trying this out or going to race, racecation. They actually want to do, you know, run, bike, run this week, a trail run next week, uh, color run that. So we have to be able to show that our sport, multi-sport offers a lot. When it comes to the cost, that's, that is a huge barrier. So what we've done is not only find, you know, discounts and all those, that's not really what we have to reposition the way people feel about our sport. So a lot of that is through imagery use. It's very rare now you'll see somebody in a, in a $5,000 TT bike through our, through our channels. It's very rare. And we're doing that intentionally, not because we don't want people to be competitive. The people at the tip of the sphere of our sport are never going to change. I'm somebody, I wanna win races. I wanna be top three. We need to make sure our sport always serves that group. But we have to think about that's such a small community, such a small community compared to the community we want to reach and the community that really is doing our sport. Most of our athletes, about 75 percent, do small community races. They don't do these big races on big bikes. So we really try to promote, you know, going to Walmart, go to Target to get your first bike, borrow a bike. You know, uh, so the main we've also worked with we're working with a partner right now. Uh, that, that a big big partner across the country that is about offering youth triathlon packages for like a hundred bucks with a bike, uh, you know, getting some goggles and away you go. And I want to do the same thing for adults at about two to three hundred dollars where they can get just a basic bike, um, goggles and everything you need to get started because that's really for us is that that's where our sport has gotten to and what made it so special is like fast people doing big things and that's never going anywhere. What we need to do, though, is think more like a 5K or 10K would think. And there's people at the front of the line who want to toe the line and kick ass. And there are people who just want to finish. And what we have to do is celebrate and give people a, a home that just want to finish. And that's what I think that we that's and cost is, is a big thing, a big barrier for them to even consider finishing. It's a lot easier to go get a pair of tennis shoes and run a 5K. And so that's what we're, we're working on. We have not perfected that yet, though. That is something that's always going to be a work in progress. And, and, and I'm saying all this as somebody who wants the next set of wheels. Who want, So I'm saying this as somebody who knows what's best for the sport. And if I was just an athlete, I'd go, yeah, that's good for the sport, but not for me. It is good for you. And the reason why I think it's good for me, it's good for anyone in the sport, because the bigger and better these races are, the more, the better they'll be produced. They're better to be run. The more officials they'll have, like everything gets better. It's an economic model here for these race directors and all these other groups. The more people we get into the funnel, the better it is for everybody. And that's what our focus is, is to try to lessen those barriers. They're never going to go away. Those barriers, there's always going to be a psychology issue with swimming among people who haven't swam their whole lives. There's always going to be a cost barrier, no matter how low we get that. And there's always going to be an information barrier of us, you know, overcomplicating our sport with the vernacular we use, um, some of the buzzwords we use. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to, to knock out all three, but it, again, this is something that is, we have to recognize that's a limitation of our sport and we have to do everything we can to overcome it, but it's not something that is going to just disappear. I want to be very clear about that. We're trying to lessen it, knowing that it's going to be a, every sport, every activity has barriers. Um, every single one of them, those are our barriers and we've identified them and we're trying to address them, but they're not going to go away. Yeah, I, you know, I, again, I find myself in complete alignment and agreement with everything you've said as somebody who came to the sport and spent, gosh, the first 
almost 15 years in the sport is middle of the pack, back of the pack. I mean, I, I always found triathlon to be an incredibly welcoming environment. And uh, I love that about the sport. And now that I've become someone who's much more competitive and tip of the spear, as you put it, uh, I am always, you know, careful to make sure that I remain welcoming to those who really do make a make up the bulk of the athlete body. Because like you said, the more of them, the more events that are available for me to compete in and, and the better and the healthier the sport is. And I, I, I really, I, I hear your enthusiasm and your optimism and, and I can't help but smile. It just makes me really encouraged about where things are going. So thank you for your leadership. And uh, more importantly, thank you for joining me today on uh, the podcast to talk about all this. It's really been uh, very educational and entertaining. that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TriDocPodcast.com. If you have feedback about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or if you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode, I hope that you'll send me an email at TRI underscore DOC at iCloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com where you could find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll tell a friend and consider leaving me a rating and a review as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast and gaining access to lots of exciting and really entertaining bonus content, and that can be done at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.